Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here on the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. For purposes of this podcast, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. There is no incorrect spelling. Yes. And spelling counts here, except for Rockmeister McCool. Anyway, you write in. <laughs> I was going for like a whole thing, and I just kind of gave up on it right away. Welcome to the show where everything's made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is, the, uh, this is the show where we answer your emails. You can write mm-hmm. in. The email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. People write in and ask us questions, ask us for our opinions, ask us for recommendations, ask us to do goofy challenges, uh, talk about issues that have been raised in our various podcasts, um, disagree with us, uh, recommend movies, ask for recommend anything. There's all kinds of stuff people ask for. All they, kind, there's all kinds it. of stuff people ask for. That's a philosophy. There's all kinds of stuff people ask for. Aristotle. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we don't like to dally too much in this podcast because the time is yours. Whitney, read yes. our first email. Uh, here's a letter from Moses. Hello, Moses. Hi. Um, hey, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. And uh, I, if you can see this, Rockmeister McCool is spelled in phonetic Hebrew. Ooh, that's awesome. Um, uh, if I were a film critic, oi. Uh, but seriously, love all your podcasts. When you announced that you would be, you would be reviewing Fiddler on the Roof... I was both thrilled and trepidatious. It is one of my all-time favorite films and one of my earliest memories of being taken to the movies. Yes, I'm older than both of you. Um, I'm always happy to hear... Someone's gotta be. (laughs) Yeah, we weren't the first people. I'm always happy to hear what you guys have to say about films and TV shows for that matter, but at the same time, concerned. As you have pointed out yourselves on numerous occasions, you're a couple of, quote, white guys. Personally, I find such labels silly, bordering on insulting. While Whitney has has had experience within the Jewish community, I know from what you've said that it is largely from secular reform and conservative Jews and not from bearded, tzitzi-wearing, pray-three-times-a-day-without-fail Orthodox Jews, Mm -hmm. which is as is portrayed in that movie. Uh, With the present climate of political correctness, the slightest innocent comment or joke can ruin a career. The massive spike in anti-Semitism around the world has made the situation far worse. For example, just like what Alton Brown did to himself on Twitter today, uh, as of the writing of this letter, uh, I don't know what happened with Alton Brown. I don't um, think I know that one. uh, He apologized and people are still demanding his head on a platter. I was really worried that you guys were going to be putting your feet in your mouths. Thankfully, you didn't. Oh, that's a relief. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) We we didn't need our own feet. I was worried about that (laughs) build-up. You did, however, miss several important points. Okay. As we expected to. And we asked people to write in and let us know what we we missed missed or misunderstood in Fiddler. Here we go. Um, The character of the the Fiddler was extremely important, being that he represents all of Jewish traditions in general, and Tevye's sanity in particular, for one. Did you not notice that no one else sees or interacts with the fiddler? Almost as though, almost as if he's not really there. Yeah, I could have Te- sworn someone else interacted with that fiddler. Tevye is the only one who kind of like, like regards the I fiddler. There was a minute where the and everybody sings the fiddler's song, but you know. Okay, may I? You know what? I only saw the movie once. Mm. I never saw the play. That yeah. that detail escaped me. All right, fair enough. Uh, the anti-Semitism runs through the whole story like nails on a chalkboard. Bibbs, you commented that the government decided to invade this one village. At the beginning of the film, you hear pogroms and mass expulsions are happening all over Russia, and yes. it feels like you kind of missed the point. Uh, no, I, I didn't. I caught on that. Yeah, I, yeah we, we just didn't comment. If I didn't go into yeah. enough detail, I apologize. Um, the scene where the constable informs Tenvia that there will be a pogrom in Anatevka is also huge because it shows that even among people who get along, there is an underlying current of religious hatred just simmering. The constable tells Tevya he would have made a good Russian. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, hey. my goodness. Stop fighting cats. Come on. 
when uh, and then Tevia tells the constable he would have made a good Jew, and the constable is clearly offended by that. Uh, when Huddle, the second daughter, sings her song, it isn't just about love. It's a very sad song because Perchik has been imprisoned in a forced labor camp in Siberia, and she is leaving everything she knows to be with him. Uh, th- that, was, that was a plot point we knew. I think we just didn't mention that. No, no, part. we mentioned yeah. it. I was talking about how I didn't particularly care for that song, and I, and yeah. I understood the, the like emotional significance of it. I think I might have glossed over it lightly for the sake of trying to be entertaining, but... Mm. Uh, no, I understood that it was significant. I just didn't think it was a particularly like well written melody. Oh, okay. The song kind of didn't make it just impact. like from an objective melodic yeah. point of view. Yeah, I could have I could have been more detail on that. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. And uh, furthermore, Tevya's refusal to accept Kava marrying out of the faith and uh, converting is not just an oh fuck it. Uh, he dies inside because he feels that he must make that choice. She has chosen to leave her family, her community, her faith to be with people that despise them. Nowadays, this is what is called giving Hitler a posthumous victory. Mm. I've heard that saying before. Uh, Enough criticism from me, though. A bit of trivia. Philip, uh, uh, Paul Michael Gazer, who plays Perchik, had a musical number, which you can hear on the soundtrack. Unfortunately, his singing is so atrocious that it was cut from the film. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's always fun. And, uh... Uh, director Jewison didn't cast Zero Mostel for a few reasons. We mentioned that Zero Mostel played Tevia on Broadway. Yeah. And uh, the director, Norman Jewison, didn't want Zero Mostel to play him in the movie. Yeah. And uh, we're about to find let, out a few reasons why. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Zero Mostel had a reputation for being a director's nightmare. <laughs> uh, I've heard that, uh, where he always liked to do every take differently. Oh, that's hell in the editing room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That so, nothing like, matches, you can't edit it. And, you know, when you're doing that on stage, that's great. Like, mm-hmm. if, if you're going to the theater night after night after night seeing the same show, you're going to get a different performance from Zero Mostel each time. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to edit a film, that's a that's a nightmare. I remember uh, Christopher McQuarrie talking about that in the commentary track, I think, for Way of the Gun. Mm-hmm. He was like, yeah, we, one of the reasons why this movie uses so many long takes is Benicio Del Toro did every take different. And we kind of <laughs> just had to commit to one to a style for the film. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that about Benicio Del Toro, too. He's just yeah. going to kind of do what he does. Um he, uh, Mustel had a reputation for being director's nightmare. He also wanted the film to be less comedic. Mustel had broken his leg at the beginning of the Broadway run, and it had never quite healed properly. Uh, Chaim Topol had played the role in London's West End to rave reviews. Thank so, you. That, that's why they hired Topol. Uh, sorry for the long letter. Hopefully one day I can meet you guys and buy you a drink. L'chaim. Oh, Moses. that's very kind of you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, that was really informative, and yeah. I thank you for that. Thank you for illuminating some things that we either missed or sort of glossed over in our review, you know, a part of me would love to be able to dedicate like an entire like hour and a half, Mm. like podcast to every movie that we do. Yeah. Because, you know, think about how much effort it takes to make a movie. Think about how many months, years, sometimes decades Mm. to bring a story to the screen and how many people work on it, how many hours in the day in the production, the post-production. And oftentimes we just have to, some people like dash through a review in like a a couple of minutes. Yeah. We try to dedicate as much time as we can, but even then it's like maybe half an hour at most. And some movies you feel like you need to dash through. Through. That's yeah. kind of the only way you can talk about certain movies. Yeah, Fiddler's, uh, Fiddler's dense. It, Fiddler's, a th- it's a three-hour epic with a lot of history and yeah, a lot and of artistic quality. Yeah, it's and, based on you know, novels from before the turn of the 20th century. And I wish we had just the complete wherewithal 
to do mm. the research required for a lot of these movies. Well, that takes time. We, it That's takes time, and, and we Sorry. we do we do some. You know, we're not completely irresponsible, no. but we can't do deep like we can't do every episode the way Karina Longworth does, for instance, who has yeah. an entire team of researchers going like sifting through Hollywood history and getting every little detail. I mean, part of I that wish is a, we could. Part of me too, and uh, part of me, you know, like listen, I I wish we had nothing else to do. Yeah. But yeah. these podcasts, but also we make a lot of them mm. and you know, that, that affects how much time we can do research in some cases. But, um, you know, another thing with the streaming club is, you know, a lot of it is at least one of us, sometimes both mm. are experiencing a film for the first time. That's the point. We want at least one completely yeah. fresh perspective and one person who is like filling in, uh, uh, like a, a void yeah. in their film lexicon. And on one hand, I think it is useful to just get that reaction, to get that experience and to just focus on what it is like to encounter the movie yeah. for the first time. And if there's more research you can get done, that's awesome. But again, we're not, this isn't like, sadly, as much as I would love to do this, um, you know, the the film history hour. Um, I guess that's kind of episode zero. Mm-hmm. That's where we do that. We also do that in Only the Best when we talk about the Academy Award nominees of yore. Um, and, uh, and we talk about that in some of our other shows as well. But for critically acclaimed, that's a more sort of in the moment uh, mm. film review podcast. But, you know, there are things we miss. And they're also in the case of something like Fiddler on the Roof, which is incredibly steeped in a particular uh, culture and not just a particular culture, but a particular geographic region. Uh there's bound to be things we missed, which is why we asked people to write in. Mm. I'm really, really glad you did. Uh, I heard a couple other people said they plan to. Maybe we'll get to some of those mm. today, but uh, let's move on. All right. Well, this this uh, next letter is also about Fiddler. Um, there you go. This comes from Seth. Hello, Seth. Hi, Seth. Uh, dear Bibbs and Rockmeister, Burgermeister McCool, <laughs> I'm writing to, t- uh, writing to you about the accuracy of Fiddler on the Roof. I grew up Jewish and had only seen the film version of Fiddler once all the way through in fifth grade at Sunday school. <laughs> I think everybody has films like that, right? That you watch in Sunday uh, school? That, that you watch like once as a kid in class or, oh, yeah. or in Sunday school. For me, it was The Boy Who Could Fly. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie since second grade. Wow. I remember pretty vividly, yeah. but it's probably slightly off. Um, I've also seen it on stage twice. The first time uh, it was the 1990 Broadway production with Topol, and more recently a national tour of the 2015 Broadway production, which was fascinating. That was the production I saw. With Alfred Molina. With Alfred Molina. I saw that one like on Broadway in New York. That's um, cool. So when you guys announced it as a pick, I thought, sure, let's check out this film again. I am not a big fan of this film version. I find it very bloated. In fact, it may be even longer than the show. And I find the pacing really, really slow towards the end. This, I agree. Although, yes, the music and Jerome Robbins' choreography retain their power. As for the accuracy, yes, it's probably the closest representation of shtetl life I've seen on screen. Although, I uh, really, how much shtetl life have we seen on screen between this and the beginning of An American Tale? Uh, uh, this is a good point. I've been to a, a good point. I've been to a few Orthodox weddings where the separation of men and women are still practiced, especially in the synagogue. Also, I grew up with my parents doing the Sabbath prayer on Friday nights after sundown. I have also attended many bar mitzvahs, and my 13th... And in my 13th year, begged my parents not to have the DJ play Sunrise Sunset at any point <laughs> during the reception. <laughs> I wonder if there's like a cool like disco version, like a like a remix of Sunrise Sunset. There's probably warring disco versions of Sunrise Sunset. I, <laughs> I think the only thing that may be fuzzy in Fiddler is the matchmaker. Shalom Aleichem had hated the matchmaking process and the mat and the matchmaker because a lot of 
a lot of the time, the matches of young girls were made to men visiting the shtetl from other countries, disguising themselves as counts. And the matchmakers knew this and worked with these men. The girls would end up being taken and then trafficked into brothels in other countries, never seeing their families again. Dear God. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, a system to hate. Uh, however, Fiddler on the Roof is great, uh, it, and it means a lot to families of immigrants and not just Jewish families. There was a really fantastic documentary that came out earlier this year called Fiddler, colon, Miracle of Miracles, about the making of the musical and its impact all over the world. I want to see that. That sounds cool. I didn't Never know heard, yeah. Um, before the shutdown, there had been a production of Fiddler performed somewhere in the world ever since the show opened on Broadway in 1964. So the footprint of Fiddler on the Roof is all over, so much so that there is another film version in the works to be directed by Thomas Kale, the director of Hamilton. Oh, oh um, that's cool. Another, like, straight-up film version, or they're just another okay, revival? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So thank you for my, reading my letter and bringing me back to Fiddler on the Roof. I look forward to your show every week, and I can't wait to hear Bibbs review all these made-for-television Christmas movies. <laughs> Sincerely, Seth. Well, you're... you're the listeners like that. <laughs> it's when William forces me to watch those things, too, that I take issue. Oh, listen, there's a couple of them that are, like, big enough that you're going to have. Like, there's, like, there's like a Netflix Christmas musical. That's like debuting this week, I think. There's a, a Crispin, Crispin, Christmas lesbian romance that I'm yes. looking forward to seeing with uh, Kristen Stewart yeah. and uh, Mackenzie Davis. Yeah, which yeah, looks but, uh, just which, inject that into my veins. Which does I look don't fine. Care. Yeah. That's, that's a that's good casting. Um, thank you so much for your letter. And again, we really appreciate all these additional perspectives and all mm. of this uh, additional context. Um, our, the previous letter writer said that when Whitney and I refer to ourselves as white guys, you know, it can come across a little. But um, a little, little flip, maybe maybe yeah. so. But I I do think it's worth noting when we discuss particularly stories that stem from other cultures that we're not of that culture, yeah, and that we are of, well, and so we declare what our particular culture is, and you know that's not necessarily, you know. We're not trying to make a thing out of it. We just want you to know that we're not pretending that we know everything about everything. Yeah, we, we we're generally speaking, kind of on a good day, vaguely authoritative about certain aspects of film. Uh, I would, I would never declare there are a few to be, things more than others. A few things more than others, but uh, there, there we, aren't a lot of film not, critics who know more about the step up movies than us. Maybe not. Few. But not many. Yeah. <laughs> so we have our, our fields of expertise and uh, we by no means want to come across as, uh, well, maybe sometimes unduly arrogant, but not always unduly <laughs> arrogant. And, you know, know-it-alls who know everything about everything. Like, hopefully we can contribute to the conversation sometimes more mm. than others. And when we feel like we can only contribute so much, like a, a, like less than usual, mm. we want to we want to be upfront about that. And we want to say that, hey, listen. We don't have all the context yeah, we, here. We, have, we can discuss it from this outsider's yeah, here, perspective. Here is our outsider's per- perspective for what that may be And worth. again, it's another reason why I'm glad we do this particular podcast so other people can chime in mm. and give those other perspectives that we sadly cannot give yeah, in person. Yeah. So let's move yeah. on. Here's a letter from Stuart. Hi, Stuart. Hi. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Roxmeister McCool. That's seven O's. Um, <laughs> I come to you bearing two questions and a follow-up question. So there'll be three questions, wouldn't Definitely it? Um, three questions. I've been trying not to let the doom and gloom of 2020 bog me down. So since the pandemic, I've been actively research, searching for new movies to watch each week. Is there a certain website you check to see what new releases are available each week? I find myself mm. only seeing one or two, but there are so many gems uh, you two have shown a spotlight on. This is the bane. 
of critics' existence during this period. It got it got really complicated lately because it used to be relatively straightforward because there were so many theatrical releases mm-hmm. and those were easy to look up on sites like uh, you know IMDb mm, or Box Office Mojo, yeah, and- or the numbers and these things were pretty easy to follow. Uh, but and then there would be like some streaming and VOD stuff, and you would usually just sort of look around for articles, or sometimes they would even have press releases like, "Here's everything new that's coming to Netflix this month," mm. and you just check the weekend. There really should be one particular site that just covers every new release mm. all the time, regardless of medium or TV or platform streaming yeah, yeah. theaters, and would just and that could be it. Uh, there's a there's a new website uh, well not new but new to me, newish. Uh, that is I've become it's become completely indispensable to me. Mm. It's justwatch.com. Oh, I've, I've dabbled here. Yeah. Okay, so the thing is, and it's especially difficult now. Like even if you live in a town that still has a video store, oftentimes what'll happen is you think of a movie, you say I want to see that movie. Do you own that movie? Great. You don't have to think about it anymore. If you don't, you have to say to yourself, how can I get that movie? Mm-hmm. Is it on any streaming service that I can currently access? Justwatch.com is actually a pretty good website. All you do, you go into the search engine, search for the movie, and they'll bring up that title and anything similar. Yeah, and it just tells you what streaming services they're on. Are any of them free or any of them like ad-based or whatever? How much do they cost on those other services? And if it's not on there, which a lot of stuff isn't, that means you got to get it on DVD. Mm. So I found that incredibly useful, and I, that feels like a total niche. And I feel like a website that just focused on here's what's new mm. every single week. And you could, if you wanted to get ambitious, you could even put in books and comics or whatever. But like just new media mm. every single week, boy, would that be useful. Something I found one recently. It was called like Screen Report. I'd have to go okay. home and look it up, but it did have like a list of everything being released across awesome. most platforms. I don't know why so many online streaming services are so coy about mm-hmm. their product. Um, they usually, I know, of, I know. Sometimes deals don't necessarily go through until the last minute. Mm-hmm. There are last minute changes. Like Disney is uh, going to release. I guess they had a new version of um, it's Black Beauty. Okay. Uh, they were making a new version of that. I think it was supposed to go to theaters, and they decided, screw it, we'll make it Thanksgiving release on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, that was announced, like, a couple of days ago by the time we recorded this episode. And, you know, it comes out in, like, two weeks. So that wouldn't have been on any articles about this in October. Mm. So I get that there are last-minute changes, surprise drops, all these fun things. But, yeah, it feels like they should be pretty easy to look up. Yeah, I remember we should, we just having absolute hell. I just wanted to look at what's everything that's on Netflix. Can I just see a list mm-hmm. of everything that is currently streaming on Netflix? And the answer I found was no, not really. <laughs> no, not especially. No, not not, the, not not reliable, not convenient. There there is a press portal that that's the press can access and only the press can access mm-hmm. which like previews which, of it's well, got they pre- didn't even do that anymore it's actually a little different now but like, yeah, that they, was the they, idea they don't have preview but they, there's like little write-ups in it like all of the press contacts that a journalist might need um and even then not everything is listed in the press portal nope. like they they drop in and out as the schedules change and i think uh, a lot of streaming services are looking for that kind of scheduled leeway. They want to be able to drop films whenever mm-hmm. rather than behold, be beholden to a release date. I know that's the uh, something that can get a lot of big uh, Hollywood blockbusters in trouble. Yeah. Uh, like Justice League, for instance. You know, they were 
tinkering with that thing real, real fast because they had a deadline to meet. And if they'd never set a release date, Mm -hmm. they would have had a lot more time to make a film, I think, that would have resembled a little bit something that didn't feel as rushed as it did. Yeah. And the release dates, they're a problem anyway. And they often get pushed back. And if they get pushed back, all of a sudden, everyone's like, "Uh uh-oh, Titanic's in trouble. It got pushed back to Christmas. And like, No, it just got pushed back. Not necessarily. There's a million different reasons why that can happen. Anyway, I I wish I had better advice for you. Uh, Mm. IMDb is not as reliable as it used to be because it focused so much on theatricals. Mm. Uh, What I would say is, um, oh, there's a website that focuses on VOD. I can't remember. Hold on, let me see if I can find it. <laughs> um, hold on. Yeah, that's a little insider baseball for you that, about what we have to go through to yeah, find let these me see titles. If I can find uh, releases.com. Mm. Just uh, releases. They, they, releases.com has a has a section for like VOD. Um, actually, I actually haven't done too much exploring on that website otherwise. But my internet is slow. Okay. Well, there is another question in this letter, so I'll just move ahead. Um, Okay. My second question is, do you own any movie or television props? Mm. And the follow-up question is, if you had an unlimited budget, what movie prop would you like to own? Like, we could just afford to buy any movie prop. Yeah. Um, I actually do own a movie prop, mm. but I uh, we actually need to get it like like authenticated and stuff. So I don't okay. want to go out on a limb. But hopefully one day I'll be able to announce that I do own like a, a neat movie prop. Um, other than that, do I own a movie prop? <laughs> I don't think I do. Um, I have one. What you got? And it was cut from the movie, so I can't really like point to a scene where you. Uh, uh, but uh, I worked at the New Art Theater here in West Los Angeles, and uh, Rob Zombie filmed a couple scenes for the Lords of Salem there. Oh yeah. And the context of the theater in the movie was that it was going to be playing an all night horror thon. So everybody was dressed up in horror costumes. Yeah. I got to see Rob Zombie walk by. He's dressed like Rob Zombie and that he's like noisy with chains and leather. Mm. And they decorated the theater to look like it was running an all night horror thon in a Rob Zombie world. So there were a lot of plastic skulls hanging. Everywhere. And that scene's in the movie. You can totally see it. It is in the movie. It was. I thought it was. Wasn't no, it? it's cut. There's really that movie. What am I theater, yeah, the, the scenes from the new art were cut from Lords of Salem. What am I thinking of? It must be thinking but, of a uh, similar film. Yeah, but uh, I they let me keep one of the skull props and we use it as a Halloween cool. decoration. Um, okay, like, so, legit movie props. It's, it's that's like as sophisticated as I get. So you know when I said that there should be a website that mm. focuses only on new releases and when they're coming out. Uh-huh. Uh, releases.com. Oh, just really <laughs> That's literally, com. I've only been using them for VOD. Turns out, like, on their main page, it's just, like, literally every new release. And it's, Great. And they have, right. it in, they have movies, they have video games, they have TV. I'm an idiot. That's the website. <laughs> Releases. There you go. <laughs> They've done it. It's my brilliant idea has already been done. Releases.com. Mm. Thank you, Releases.com. Near as I can tell, you're doing a very good job. I love it. Everyone head over to Releases.com to find out what new is new every single week. I'm 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 tempted to just say hey let's let's just let's just call it a, a, a night and just like just be embarrassed <laughs> but we got to we got to chug along mm. I will I will eat crow on this releases.com is, is the website you're looking for mm. boom <laughs> boy do I feel foolish <laughs> egg on your face uh, but right. uh, but to address the second part of that question yeah. what if if you could like if you're a bazillionaire and money were no object what, Inigo what Montoya's you sword from the Princess Bride the sword yeah, yeah. that or uh, the the one of the because you know they made more than one mm. uh, one of the sleds from Citizen Kane oh there you go That'd like a, like a rosebud or oh you know be cool mm. to have like one of like uh, like any piece of like a screen used Godzilla suit. 
Yeah, I was, I was wondering, can does a, a suit, a Godzilla suit, count as a prop or sure. as a costume? Yeah, I think it's fine. All right. Um, hmm. Uh, a Star Trek communicator, like from Next Generation. Just oh. keep one of those in a little box. Uh, either the, in uh, uh, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, mm. either the grail or the fake grail that kills you. <laughs> that would the, be amazing. The big shiny one. Boy, I would, oh God, I, I would I'd buy a replica of that. That'd be cool. A particular piece of makeup from Boogie Nights. It'd be just fun to have around the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that took me a second. Yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, one oh, of, you uh, know what? One of Freddy Krueger's gloves. A Freddy Krueger glove, Belial. Just from, Belial. Just, just a Belial, just, in, just a Belial in, in the basket, yeah. Yeah, just from, rotting from, away from, from the movie the Basket Case, yeah. That's good. Oh, uh, one Dana, of the Necronomicons. Oh, there you go. That'd be yeah. cool. Uh, Dana Gould, comedian Dana Gould, uh, is the world's biggest Planet of the Apes fan. And uh, he got to meet one of the makeup designers from Planet of the Apes who had one of the original facial appliances. And he was like, oh, this is... And it was one of the -the over-the-head models. Like, not the ones that they glued onto the the actors' faces because those were, like, little tiny pieces of rubber. And I think those have rotted away long ago. But they did have an over-the-head mask. It's like, oh, this is great. And Dana Gould said, can I try it on? He tells the story and... uh, the artist said, sure, well. you can pull it over your head. Little did he know that when you crinkle up a bunch of, like, 50-year-old rubber, it's going to release all these, like, spores in your face. Yeah. So he pulled it over his head, and he couldn't breathe. And, of course, his first instinct was to take a deep breath in. Oh, no. So he, like, choked on all of this, like, ancient <laughs> rubber. Oh. Oh, that's gross. He also says it was worth it. Oh, bad. Yeah. Dana Gould and his, his Planet of the Apes obsession is legendary. Oh, my God. It's, it's just really great. If we ever talk about uh, Planet of the Apes, we should try to get him on the podcast. We've done Planet of the Apes. No, but do, we again, did the whole series. We should do it again just to get Dana Gould yeah, on Yeah, we should show. do one of those uh, failed TV shows that they do. Oh, there you go. We haven't um, done the two series. Anyway, if anyone... Uh, uh, I don't know if this is enough to build a whole like uh, email about, but if anyone wants to email in in the future and just add in like the the dream movie prop, like the, mm. if you only had one, yeah. what movie prop would you like to own? Uh, send it in. Let us know. We'd be curious to hear. It's kind of a fun conversation starter. Hmm. All right. Here's a letter from uh, Rick. Hello, Rick. Hi. Uh, hey, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, my new employer is one hour and 15 minutes from my home, and I'm using your numerous podcasts to fill the hours as I drive 130 miles each day. Dear God. Oh, good God. It's exhausting. I am so sorry. Well, I'm glad uh, we're reading yeah. your email. Yeah, glad we're reading your email. Thanks for listening to us. Uh, you know, books on tape and mm-hmm. ZBS productions uh, are a good way to fill the hands time. Hands at ten and two. Mm-hmm. Hands at ten and two. Yeah. Uh, please, for the love of God, don't slow down. I need the volume. <laughs> In the latter's podcast I just finished, you asked for examples of older films that are at least as relevant today as when they were first released. My pick is 1957's extraordinary A Face in the Crowd. Yeah, that's a the, good one. The film stars Andy Griffith as a drifter plucked from obscurity by Patricia Neal's Marsha, the daughter of the owner of a local radio station, when she chooses him for a random on-air segment. Griffith's character adopts a Will Rogers-type persona of Lonesome Roads and immediately charms listeners. Marsha guides Rhodes' career to progressively larger stations and eventually to national television. As Rhodes' popularity and his audience grows, so does his power and his ambition. He uses his influence to first peddle shoddy products, Trump stakes, anyone? And later, politicians. The film is a frightening prescient look at the power of celebrity... Uh, of celebrity influence amplified by the media. Patricia Neal's fantastic as a woman both in love with and horrified by Rhodes, who must reckon with her role in his rise to power. Andy Griffith is a revelation, alternating between his easygoing on-mic camera persona and then bursting with the raw animal energy of an unchecked id when there's no audience watching. 
Walter Matthau plays the nice guy. <laughs> I forgot he was in that. You're right. Yeah. How often do you hear that phrase? Walter Matthau plays the nice guy. It happens. I mean, he's a perfectly decent man, but yeah, usually played like grumps and bastards. Uh, Marcia should have chosen and largely functions as a Greek chorus to ensure no one misses the moral of the story. Hey, the film is fantastic, but it's not subtle. I first saw this on TCM sometime around 2010 and was struck by its message and its portrayals. Seriously, Griffiths should have gotten an award. It can only be more impactful now. Anyway, that's my contribution. I can't wait to hear what you and my and, and my fellow listeners come up with. Finally, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Turner Classic Movies for forever ruining two classic sitcoms for me. Uh-oh. I can never watch the Andy Griffiths show again. <laughs> Much as a double indemnity has ruined my three sons. <laughs> That's really good. That's really That's good. good. Uh, thanks again for all the amazing content. I recommend critically acclaimed to my friends and coworkers often. Oh, thank you for thank that. Thank you so much. That's, That's really, really sweet. Kind of Proud you. patron, Ray. He, he also does a PS here uh, where he uh, essentially asks um, for people who listen while they're driving. We do like a lot of list episodes that mm-hmm. are just like a long list of recommendations. We do the iron list. And uh, sometimes people can't write those down because they're driving or they're away from a pen and paper. So, um, William, what can be done about that? Well, actually, (laughs) someone suggested this uh, not that long ago, and I think it's a great idea. I just need to make the time to sit down and do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, and I know a few of our patrons have actually put together on Letterboxd like handy dandy lists of every movie we've ever given a C plus to or. Um, every movie that we put in episode zero and now every movie that we put in Rocky Horror. Mm. Um, but someone made the suggestion that, hey, for all of these like big list episodes that you've done, can you create a letterbox page for them? Mm. And that's actually a really good idea. And I am going to, at some point, sit down, create a, uh, uh, an account just for Critically Acclaimed, and uh, I will start backlogging that. Mm. Um, so, it, unfortunately... Really hectic right now. Going to take a couple of weeks before I could probably sit down and do that with any uh, great depth. But it is mm. definitely on my to-do list. It sounds fun. Um, I The fact that multiple people have asked for it means that, well, clearly someone would be interested and it would serve a function. Mm. Um, part of me feels like it's like, oh, it's so egomaniacal to assume anyone would want that. But apparently a few people do. So it's mm. worth doing. Uh, and uh, we'll get that done. And when that happens, we'll link to it um, on, on our Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll announce it on the Patreon page and we'll put it on the Facebook account as well. At least put the link up uh, for people's convenience because mm-hmm. it's a good idea and it makes a lot of sense. So yeah, we'll get that done. Um, here's another letter. This one Great. comes from Isaac. Hello, Isaac. Hi. Um, reaching back uh, about a month here. We we don't get to read every letter, unfortunately. No. There, there was a time when we got just enough mail that we could. And unfortunately, our volume of letters has surpassed that. So we, we do try to answer a good variety mm-hmm. of letters from a good variety of writers. But uh, if, if you really are, uh, ur- if your letter is really urgent or it yeah. uh, contains a topic you really, really, really need us to discuss. Especially in a timely just, manner. Know, yeah, especially if it's timely, you know, n- note it somehow, like denote yeah. in, that. In, or, in the subject heading, put like, you know, mm-hmm. please read. ASAP. Yeah, or, or if, yeah. if it's been a couple months and we haven't read your letter yet, maybe you can re-up it, like send it again. You're also uh, welcome it's... to poke us on Twitter, especially Whitney, at Whitney Seibold, since he's in charge mm. of curating the letters. Yeah, the letters. So just just yeah. let, let me know uh, if, if, if it really is urgent, and I'd be happy yeah. to get to it. Um, this one comes from Isaac. It says, hey, Bubbly Bibs and Rocky Road. <laughs> I'll take Rocky Road. Um, I absolutely loved your episode zero podcast, and especially the one you just put out with Clerks. Oh. 
I knew that Star, Star Wars was influenced by the fans, but I never fully realized how far-reaching that went. I just wanted to add something to that conversation. Oh, please do. Do you think that because of the Star Wars EU, that expanded universe that is the books, in which fans got to write and experience so much Star Wars content that was absent of George Lucas, uh, help, did it help lead the backlash against the prequel series? I'm not sure any other franchise allowed pretty much fan fiction to become its own pillar of the franchise that it was growing new ideas from. Uh, Star Trek was like that, too. Yeah, Star Trek would actually um, take, like, scripts from oh. fans and produce them in episodes of, like, Next Generation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was actually part of the model. It worked. There's some good episodes, mm. memory serves. No. Um, I mean, they, they curated them. They actually, like, made sure mm. that they won't. This, this stinks, but, eh, they sent it in. I guess we got to make it. <laughs> Patrick Stewart, you're a penguin now. Oh, okay. Well, that's an interesting script. I, I think Star Trek uh, had the reputation for a while of being the only TV series with an open-door script policy. Mm-hmm. Anybody could mail them a script, and they'd entertain them all. And, uh, yeah, several, they'd at least consider it, yeah. Yeah, and they'd, they'd read them all. They... Um, in the documentary film from the 90s, Trekkies, that was hosted by uh, 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 Denise Crosby, they actually talked to Brandon Braga and some of the other writers on the show about how uh, they would get all kinds of scripts. They would read them all, and some of them were incredibly bizarre. They got a bunch of scripts from uh, a young writer who wrote about a character named Ensign Jones. Mm. And they were all, it was sort of like. Uh, Charles Barkley, Reginald Barkley, Lieutenant mm. Barkley, uh, this sort of side character told from this guy's perspective. And there was this whole stack of Ensign Jones scripts just sitting around the Star Trek office. It's like, well, it's a good idea. Keep on writing in. But I don't know what we're going to do with all these Ensign Jones scripts. Yeah, there's only we really can't make. By the way, time. coming soon to CBS All Access, Ensign Jones. <laughs> Now that yeah. I pay to see, um, but uh, to answer your question about well, Star, there, there's, oh, there's more. There's, there's I thought, some more. I thought, yeah. you, I thought that was done. You um, also, although I do agree with most, f- I I do agree when fans obstructing creators' visions and demanding things be changed. I do believe Mass Effect is unique in this moment. Yeah, uh, Mass Effect One and Two were both developed by BioWare before EA. Uh, these are all video game companies. Yes. Uh, okay. Essentially, the Sith of gaming companies <laughs> took yeah. over. Yeah. Um, Mass Effect 3 was a rushed product, and developers were not given enough time to finish and uphold what they promised, which was all your actions and choices were going to create drastically different outcomes. This led to extremely high expectations for an ending that would have inevitably disappointed fans. That being said, most fans of Mass Effect felt that Bioware had been stripped of their ability to do what they wanted. The game oddly alludes to this, almost as if the developers knew and left breadcrumbs indoctrination theory Mass Effect 3 videos. Uh, to let fans know this, but they were not really to the point. Just thought that Bibbs may be interested in that aspect. Uh, that being said, appreciate the reading from Isaac. Thank you, Isaac. Um, so let, let's start with the second part first uh, regarding uh, Mass Effect. Um, when it comes to sort of meddling, mm-hmm. whether it's studio notes or, you know, directors being taken off projects or... Uh, projects switching hands, moving to different companies, and now they're going in a different direction, and original plans get scuttled, mm. or or Guillermo del Toro not being able to make his Hellboy 3 and complete his planned trilogy, and so they rebooted it. Mm. Um, I totally understand and appreciate and I'm intensely sympathetic with the plight of everyone who didn't get to tell their story. But here's the thing with a lot of those. It's actually not your story. Mm. You don't really own it. Um, some people do. 
But uh, in the case of like Hellboy, for example, that's not Guillermo no, del Toro's character. No, it's Mike Mignola's character, and he had every right to say no thanks. I'm doing something else right now. Mm. And as much of a bummer as that can be, it's not the new movie's fault that it's not made by Guillermo del Toro yeah. and completing that vision. So. And that's just one example, and it's one that fuels my point. I'll grant you, and there's a lot of them that are actually just people got screwed over, didn't get to tell the story that they wanted, and it sucks. But at the same time, I'm getting a little bit more, a little bit less, like, outraged at the concept of that, because sadly, that is the norm. Yeah. That is very, very common. It's very, very rare that anyone gets to do anything freely, with Mm. artistic freedom, with final cut, that costs a lot of money, whether it's a video game, a movie, or a TV series. When there's a lot of money involved, a lot of people are overlooking their investment. They're not necessarily looking at it as, you know, we have to maintain the purity of Mm -hmm. one storyteller or one group of storytellers' artistic vision. They're looking at what's going to make us our money back as we spend a fortune. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that stinks, but it is the norm, and maybe I'm getting jaded, but, like, I just, I'm sort of, like... Look, man, we got the game we got. If you say we're allowed to say it sucks, that's the yeah, freedom just, of, of criticism. That's why we say everyone's a critic, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're guaranteed to get what we, exactly what we want, nor are we necessarily entitled to it. Yeah, just if you get something you don't like, then you got something you don't like. Yeah, the response well, I'm should just kind of zen about y- your response should just be okay. I didn't like that. Yeah. Maybe I'm even disappointed, yeah. but. Gathering up in arms and taking to Twitter to demand that a change be made yeah. is is a little bit of a dick move in my eye. Well, there there is there's levels though, because like I'm uh, like uh, for example, after decades of interest, Warner mm. Brothers, to their credit, finally assembled the Richard Donner cut of Superman two, and then they had gave it a DVD release, mm. and it was really interesting. And I would argue that you know it's a bit slapdash in some ways because mm. some scenes were actually like cobbled together from like rehearsals and yeah footage from the first movie is reused yeah yeah so it's it's not perfect by any stretch but i actually think it's a better movie it is it actually actually is a better movie Um, there's a lot of director's cuts that are superior to the original and i'm very glad that we have them and i would love if we ever found like the original ending the magnificent ambersons or the spider bit footage from citizen kane or the whole, like, so, the last, like, 45 the, minutes of the did, Paradine case. Did you do that on purpose? What? The spider pit footage from Citizen Kane. Did I say that? You did. Wow. <laughs> there was no spider pit scene in Citizen Kane. <laughs> and not been. because it was cut. No, from Citizen... <laughs> it's from King Kong. I was thinking of Citizen Kong. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's King Kong. You're right. I don't know why I was doing that. He's laying on his deathbed holding a glove bud. Glove bud. A, a snow globe. And it rolled out of his hand and broke on the floor. And his last word was... Bananas. Uh, <laughs> what does bananas mean? Yeah, I have to think. I have to look that over. Um, but listen, there's there's a ton of movies that got taken away from their filmmakers, and I would love to see them all. Uh. I just don't think I'm entitled to see them all. I if I had the opportunity, I would of course support any filmmaker getting their vision out there. But yeah, um, and, well, and it's, which I support in general. But a part of me is also just like again. There's a difference maybe between wanting to see the filmmaker's vision and just wanting to get the version that you wanted. Yeah. yeah. And that's not necessarily always... There's not necessarily always a clear division, I guess really, my point. A lot of really frustrating conversations I had with fellow critics that it started with, uh, that was the version of Wolverine I always wanted. It's like... Well, that, what does that mean? What does that say about the movie? This is the version you always wanted. I don't know what you always wanted. Yeah, that's you. This other is, people yeah. might have wanted other versions. And yeah, especially when it comes to like comic book figures, yeah. like there's so many versions of these characters now. Who's to say what's the correct version anymore? How, what are you correcting to? 
What are we supposed to be keying into? At, here? at this point, I feel like it's like it's like the weather in like a, st- a city where the weather changes a mm. lot. Like if you don't like this version of Batman, wait a couple of years. Yeah. There will be another one. I'm gonna reboot Spider Man again any day yeah. now. But um, They're bringing but, all the old ones back. Do you hear? But I feel like I got off track. My my, mm. my overall point was uh, I support a director's filmmakers, storytellers, whatever medium you're in, artistic vision. Mm. But I am keenly aware that the system isn't necessarily set up to support that, especially at a high budget level. And a part of me is just like, yeah, they got screwed over and that sucks. If I get a chance to see their original vision, that's awesome. And of course it would Mm -hmm. support that, but I'm not going to like, I don't know. I I may, may, maybe that's bad, but, um, to answer your first question regarding, uh, Star Wars fandom and the extended universe, that's actually an interesting point because for, for a long time there in like the nineties, there were a lot of Star Wars tie in novels, Mm. uh, Comic books, some video games. Shadows of the Empire. Quite good, actually. I remember, I, I, I never touched it. I just remember seeing a lot. Like, there were toys for books. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I think I'd ever seen that. It was cool. It was mm-hmm. a good game. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, and so as it was, and these things, I mean, George Lucas actually had some veto power over that, is my understanding. Like, I remember one of the books killed off Chewbacca, mm-hmm. and they had to, like, run that by him to make sure that was okay. <laughs> um, so... There was, for a while, an expanded universe of Star Wars, which was considered canon. There was actually some attention to making sure it, it matched up. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, a lot of people were, were upset that that whole extended universe was d- basically deleted or, or non-canonical when Disney got the franchise. Mm-hmm. And they said, it's only the movies. I'm like, that's it. And that sucked. Yeah, uh, because people had a lot of affection for those. People spent a lot well, you, of time making those, writing no. those, appreciating those, well, but talking about them. Surely, the people who are following like the extended universe Star Wars stuff mm-hmm. is not a, a substantial portion of the film going public. No, and that's probably why yeah. Disney did that is because if they sp- had to bend over backwards to make sure that every single new Star Wars movie or show didn't contradict like a short story anthology from 1997 Mm. that's kind of limiting and that's a fair point actually especially considering that they wanted to continue the series and the continuing adventures of luke skywalker leia chewbacca Mm. han solo like those had been told in the books so they didn't just want to like adapt those timothy zahn books they wanted to do their own thing and you know for better or worse that's what they did um but regardless, I think it's I think it's worth noting that like when you have all of these other books and storylines which are free from the boundaries of you know uh, what is possible in mm-hmm. cinema, uh, when you have all of those things available, and then George Lucas is saying no 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 no, no this is what happened, mm-hmm. and that that's not Boba Fett. Boba Fett was the kid of a clone, and he was really sad about his dad, and, and then vanished and. <laughs> Sort of came back and got eaten by it. anyway, but like <laughs> he was he was really cool for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, not anymore. Sorry about that. But that's the kind of thing that probably was a bit of a letdown. I was a little let down, but I actually liked the book version of Boba Fett. Um, so I'm I'm sure that's a factor. I'm sure that's something where people, when you get attached to certain versions of things and they're ongoing and they're like sort of part of the franchise that you are following and taking seriously and then nope never mind yeah that kind of sucks <laughs> kind of sucks yeah yeah anyway the, the whole mm. relationship between because i feel like before like every every big blockbuster had to be part of a giant franchise with 
expanding mythologies and canons and spinoffs and um, the idea of forming this like really close connection to something that is ongoing wasn't so much of a thing. Yeah. You know, like if there's there's a new Dracula movie and Dracula did something you disagreed with, you go, there's going to be a million other Dracula movies. Mm -hmm. It's fine. But like, you know, if like, oh, I, I saw, I don't know. Um, Ant Man. No, no, no. I'm, I'm no. I'm going the other direction with this. Right. So like, if I, I I went to the movies and I saw <sighs> Cleopatra. Okay. I saw Cleopatra when it came out in the sixties. Uh, I don't know, man. I had so much invested in the lore. Like, <laughs> also, it's history. But yeah, uh, no, that's a bad example. That's right. a bad example. Okay, I went to see other movie. Okay, I went to see Marnie. <laughs> I went to see Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie, an incredibly problematic movie. And I just, I had so much invested in like the tie-in novels and the extended universe and like what Sean Connery's butler was doing the whole time. And then the movie contradicted what the butler was doing. And it's like, no, Marnie's got enough problems as it is. We don't need to add lore. This sort of stuff, all this expanded universe stuff, this was like what nerds did as a hobby. And now it's what, like, armies of people on Twitter do to, like, push studios around. And the movie, and they're doing it too. They're doing it in the movies. Mm. They're encouraging it. They want people to be excited about it. They're publishing all of the books of various mm. weapons and machineries and different animals from different planets. And that's why they made Rogue One. They they catered to you. That's all, like, insider baseball stuff. I mean, it's not a bad thing. It just I, I, I'm ambivalent about parts of it. I'm jaded about other parts of it. Mm-hmm. I again, I thoroughly support um, the rights of artists to tell their stories, but sometimes it's not their stories, and you just kind of have to sort of roll your eyes and mm-hmm. go, "All right, fine, fuck it, take solo away from Lord and Miller and give it to Ron Howard." That I, that might end up being a mistake, but who can say? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not it's not theirs. Yeah. It's Lucasfilms. I, I didn't like Solo, but you know maybe it was better than what Lord Miller were working on. Who Who's knows? Maybe it yeah. was. Who knows? Maybe I they needed know. needed someone like Ron Howard to make sense of whatever Lord Miller was screwing up. Who's Rennie to say? Harlan's yeah. version of the Exorcist prequel is actually better than Paul Schrader's, and that was the original artistic vision. They but, both suck. I was about to say they're both bad. No, they're both bad, but Rennie Harlan's is watchable. Rennie Harlan's is watchable. Paul Schrader's has more interesting ideas, and they're both bad. Yeah. Like, well, neither is really worthwhile. No, I'd rather, I'd rather watch, if I had a, if, I, if they were just mm. like, you know, hey, listen, you, 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 if you don't watch one of the Exorcist prequels mm. in the next, like, three hours, you're, we'll drop you in a pit of acid. I'll be like, mm. okay, fine, Rennie Harlan's. Like, that's yeah. what I'd say. Yeah, the first one was called, um... The Exorcist Beginning, I the, think? The Exorcist The Beginning. Exorcist and the, the Beginning Dominion, Dominion colon, to the a prequel to The Exorcist. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, here's a letter from Nikolai. Hi, Nikolai. Hello, Nikolai. Uh, hello again, Monty and Gadget. Nice. Uh, are, are you Monty and I'm Gadget? Um, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I guess so. Um, the last Jeez. time... <laughs> The last time I wrote you, I named you Chippendale, so I thought this time I'd go with other rescue rangers. Thank you. Uh, it's Nikolai from Copenhagen. Hi. Hello. Uh, hey. Uh, before anything, I want to thank the two of you, not just for being my two favorite critics who keep Aww. spreading joy and enthusiasm when it comes to film, but also for two very specific uh, reasons regarding a previous request of mine. Oh. I was the one suggested you did uh, The Iron Giant. For your critically acclaimed. Oh, awesome. To keep it short, uh, you sur- far surpassed my expectations for an amazing episode. I'll push on. Uh, you keep just putting one smile on my face whenever I hear you t- uh, passionately talk about films you like. Also, a big shout out to Michelle for pointing out the way that the flashlight lights were animated. 
That mm. was actually a really cool detail I'd never noticed before. Yeah, the, mm. in our Iron Giant episode, we talked about how um, when the character moves a flashlight in the environment, it actually does so like realistically. Most mm. cartoons don't bother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you recall, about two months ago, I write to you about my college professor friend who needed help structuring the curriculum for a sci-fi sociology class. I do remember yeah. that. That was a fun Thanks letter. for the many great suggestions that we have uh, we have compiled and we'll start putting together in a couple of days. You asked me to write you back with the finished curriculum, which I will. But because of, because of educational legal reasons, I'm not allowed to until the semester starts in January. Fair enough. I think it might have something to do with not allowing students to get a head start on their book purchases. Oh, that makes well, sense. Well, you also you, you don't want them to like skip the class because eh, we got the reading list. Yeah, yeah uh, but hang in tight. You will hear from me again. Yes. Uh, anyway, to my question, I graduated with my master's degree last year. Congratulations. That's amazing. And, uh, and one of my favorite electives was a film theory course. I loved it not just because for the many things I learned, but particularly for the very first lesson our professor taught us. When we arrived at our first class, she had written with big letters on the blackboard, bad taste exists, wrong taste does not. <laughs> When we asked into it, uh, she very directly told us, and I'm paraphrasing here, that, quote, there's already so much insecurity and self-doubt in the world regarding a lack of self-esteem and fear of what people think of one another, that the idea of feeling bad or ashamed about something has, uh, as redundant and secondary as taste in film is completely pointless. We can study it analytically all we want, but at the end of the day, like what you like. We all let up and felt a wave of anxiety being lifted from our shoulders Mm -hmm. because we all agreed with her. This might not have been the most analytical lesson we were taught, but it was without a doubt the most assuring and personal lesson we got. Cut to summer 2020, my friends and I go to watch Tenet without giving anything away. Didn't really care for it all that much. Found it to be form of... uh, Form of more focused on ambition and gimmick than plot and characters. And yes, everything you've heard about the sound mixing being stupendously loud is true. Out of curiosity, what other uh, people thought of the film, I discovered that my favorite Danish film critic had seen it. So I was intrigued to go to his podcast to hear what he had to say about it. With just one sentence, he lost my respect completely, and I cannot listen to his reviews with good conscience ever again. In the middle of his review, he said, word for word, to all Nolan haters out there, I sleep on a pillow made of your tears whenever Nolan puts out a new film. Oh my god. Wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, okay. That, that's a good that's, one. That's a good one. I find the statement not only unprofessional, but childish, selfish, and incredibly condescending and disrespectful, not only to his listeners, but to moviegoers in general. I'm, of course, not in favor of the hate trains, but shouldn't disliking a film be as valid as liking it? Absolutely. I've been saying that for years. Isn't there a distinction between liking a film and finding a film good? I know the most obvious cases are the Marvel DC fans, but in particular, Nolan fandom frustrates me. And to be honest, I think the internet and social media is to blame for this. I think overexcitement and word of mouth can lead to a very toxic and misguided ways of watching film. Yeah, uh, I should be allowed to say that I don't think the Dark Knight is as good as uh, as good a Batman movie as Mask of the Phantasm, but apparently not. Anyway, I was just cur- uh, curious about your take on the bad slash wrong film taste debate and what you think could be the right solution to this. I personally think a good place to start uh, could be, as Bib suggested, to take a break from social media, yes. which I will from tomorrow. Uh, sorry for maybe the depressive or frustrating topic. Uh, topic matter so i'll end off with a joke Mm. my girlfriend asked me yesterday if i could please stop singing wonderwall about by oasis i said maybe (laughs) (laughs) rim shot um Hope you and your families are doing well. Lots of love from Scandinavia, Nikolai. That's cute. Um, first off, I'm very curious to see that curriculum, so please don't forget to send that in mm-hmm. and make sure you make it clear in the headline so we don't miss that because I really want to know how that turned out. Uh, secondly, regarding uh, there's the difference between bad taste and wrong taste. Mm. Um, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Uh, bad is subjective. 
Mm. Bad is... Uh, 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 I, I like this movie. I don't. I think it's a bad movie. Mm. Fair. We can... We, there's no conversation there. There's no exchange of ideas. But at that point, we can just go, oh, we disagree. Let's move on with our day. Wrong is like a factual mm. concept. It is accurate or inaccurate. And that doesn't it really exist in film criticism. Like, and really any criticism. Like, art criticism... How do, how do I usually put this? Um, art criticism is the art of making subjective statements through qualitative examples. Mm. So, no, a qualitative statement through quantitative examples. Sorry. There you go. So what you're saying is, I think this movie is good. That is a qualitative response. You're mm. speaking of the quality of something. It's good or it's bad. But then That's it, just an opinion. Criticism is adding quantitative analysis, which is, I observed these mm. various things about it here's, that are good or bad. Here, here's, and by, yeah, like, here's what I know about good editing, and here's how this does not fit into what my view of good editing is, yes. etc. Yeah, so that's, that that's even if you, whether you agree or disagree with the, with the substance or the, or the overall like, mm. takeaway of the review, you can witness through those examples what the critic liked or disliked and you can see how they reached their conclusion mm -hmm. and maybe sometimes you realize that oh they've actually got a really good point that movie is better than i thought it was mm -hmm. or, oh they've got a really good point i didn't think of the movie from this way it actually doesn't quite work very well and now i my standards have been raised mm -hmm. um so that's i i think that's what criticism is yeah personally yeah. um yeah, it's uh, criticism is one of those really strange art forms in that it's an art form that uh, is seen as a little bit of an outlier because it's so heavily reliant on other art forms, right? Mm -hmm. it's, oh, yeah. it's a conversation and it's analysis of art that already exists. All, all art is um, a reaction to something, mm -hmm. often in life itself, yeah. but criticism is specifically the art of reacting to art, which is highly yeah. specialized. Uh, of course, if you want to expand what criticism is, isn't that what art is to begin with? Isn't mm -hmm. it looking at the, the art that came before it or the world around you and making a declarative statement of some kind about it? Yeah. Uh, of course, when you're getting into something like Sonic the Hedgehog, I don't know what the fuck, you know, where the fuck to, to put that, something like that. But, uh, <laughs> the world would be better uh, if there was a hedgehog in it. Do you a, mind? A, a really fast one. Yeah. To un Done. undo the injustices of Eggman everywhere. Uh, who's to say? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's, it kind of gets a little bit of a bum rap because it's considered uh, sort of like an adjunct of the arts when really it's the art that fills in the cracks between the other arts. It kind of like come, makes the whole tapestry. And, and here I'm just sort of paraphrasing from, from A.O. Scott's book, uh, Better Living Through Criticism, which is an excellent read and I recommend it. Um, sometimes... Because the shape of the conversation is the way it is, and because online life exists, people start to tie their identities to things, and they start taking opinions very personally, and sometimes they combat that by being a little bit of a dick. And that includes <laughs> critics. Even oh, yeah. like long-lived, long hard-working critics can stoop to that. You know why? Because it's a good way to blow off steam if you hate something, or if yeah. you, or if you are living in a world where people are constantly on you for hating something. A.O. Scott claims he 
didn't entirely write his book in response to his negative review of the Avengers, but he kind of did because not only did like legions of Avengers fans, but the cast of the movie came after A.O. Scott. Yeah. Saying, I think Samuel L. Jackson tweeted something like, let's find A.O. Scott a job he can do. It's like, come on, man. I've been critic for decades. When when you you think about it, like it's, it's weird how many people think that critics are like, punching down like mm. we're, like we're sitting at the top of the heap like we're really well paid like, sitting on our olympian thrones like if a critic doesn't like if a critic doesn't like a movie or a, some movie in a series that has legions of fans like we're they, not like we, we don't get to change your opinion just by like oh well and so we're right yeah like no if like if we're the outlier we're often like the only ones and like everyone else likes it and you can shout us down like, and they're like cool stepping we, into we said our piece that's it we're done thank we're you stepping in front of tigers with meat strapped to us when yeah. we say stuff like that and, and you know what but here and i will say this it would be enormously hypocritical mm-hmm. of any critic to not accept criticism yeah and if you disagree with us fair if you could disagree with us and then cite examples for why you disagree with us that we can then look at Mm. and go, I see your point. Then you yourself are a good critic. And that's awesome. And we're considering continuing a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. As as for the critics, I suppose it's just you're, you're you're wrong and I hate you. Mm. That's, that's an opinion. That's fine, but that's not a conversation. uh, I don't even have to react to that. But I, I, I imagine there's a story uh, behind the, the Danish critic you cited saying something so brazen on his film review show there, there's a, a past there. Clearly, something oh. is happening. Uh, there's, and there's a certain maybe, maybe he was expecting his listeners to understand that there had been some sort of rivalry, and it, it was maybe a running gag of some sort. Uh, and, and he was being very, uh, it's very brazen, look, uh, just to be pointed and a little bit shocking. It isn't, it's, it's a shocking, it's a shocking to, to, sentence. To, to give him the benefit of the doubt for a moment, maybe he was just being a dick. He might have just been being yeah. a dick. He might have just been having an off day mm. maybe um he's just immature mm. or or you know we're or a bit bitter for some reason mm. um either way i don't think that's that's good criticism um i'm sure i've said things like that in the past i would never say it now i i, I say things like that but only ever sarcastically i think yeah. people would be able to pick up when i'm when i'm being a little over the top for you know comedic or emphasis yeah but but basically what it boils down to is I feel like sometimes there's a combative element between the people who have basically agreed because they are fans to like anything that comes out from this a, franchise a, a or, or filmmaker a, company, yeah. a or filmmaker B and a, someone like Christopher Nolan, who has had, let's be fair here, a string of critically acclaimed, mostly blockbusters mm-hmm. that are, you know, he's got a stick He's got a style. He's got recurring motifs. Um, and once you have enough of those, it's easy to poke fun. Uh, just as it's easy to poke fun at you know, Wes Anderson or any other filmmaker who's got a particular way of doing things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there's a certain expectation of Christopher Nolan that every movie he makes, because he's made good movies before, must be great. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think that he makes movies that look great and aren't that great. But because he's established his reputation as a thinking person's filmmaker, he gets a bit of a pass on something like Interstellar, which has amazing things in it, but I don't think it's a good story. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've talked about that in detail elsewhere. So the idea of like, oh, everyone thought Christopher Nolan was going to make another good movie and they didn't like this one. And I sort of relish in that and sort of people learning a lesson about whatever. 
that's an immature way of looking at it, but I can kind of see how that could happen. Yeah. And it's again, I it's that's 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 not cool. We shouldn't be relishing in people's unhappiness. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be relishing in ah, oh, this movie wasn't very good. That's mm-hmm. not something to relish. Yeah, it's a disappointment. I want every movie to be good. Wouldn't that be a treat? Wouldn't that be the best? Every movie was good. I go into every movie hoping it'll be great. Sometimes it's not. It's really disappointing when you go into a movie and you expect it to be a masterpiece and it isn't. Which is why I think that anticipation is the antithesis of criticism. Absolutely it is. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of journalism is shaped right now. Yeah, well, at least how, at least how like, at least in our our corner of, of yeah. So many, so many podcasts, YouTube series, Twitter feeds, or punditry, just pundits build their whole careers around building and boosting anticipation for something. Mm -hmm. Because people are excited about these ongoing franchises or the careers of these particular filmmakers. And they can't wait to see what's going to happen next. And I appreciate the enthusiasm. But when you have that much enthusiasm built up ahead of time, or heck, the opposite, dread... Mm. Because, oh no, there's a new Adam Sandler movie. It must be terrible. Not necessarily. You got to give it a chance. Ooh, there's a new Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. It's going to be great. Not necessarily. necessarily, (laughs) You got to give it a chance. Because when you build up in your head an idea of not just how good the movie is supposed to be, but sometimes also what's specifically going to be in it, because you've heard the rumors Mm -hmm. or the, the buzz or whatever, um, if you get anything else, even if it's really good, it can totally throw you. Yeah. You can just get thrown on your butt and you're just like, that was terrible. Yeah, but it's great. It's just not what you expected. Mm. It's not what I expected. That was terrible. Yeah. Or <laughs> because your anticipation was canceled out. Your anticipation was like violated. Or you're, you're come to anticipate a very specific type of thing. And when the film ex- gives you that very specific type of thing, you're very satisfied, right? Yeah. And you love the movie because it made you feel very good about you put a dollar you, in the yeah. vending machine. It gave you the Snickers you wanted, yeah, and now it, you're done. It, it, it does what it says on the tin. That's what yeah. what I the saying I've come to to coin or I didn't coin it, but uh, yeah. come to use. Um, the problem with that kind of thinking is that you are now no longer demanding more from your art. Mm-hmm. If you only want a very specific set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Then and it delivers on those circumstances. Then you have you you have allowed yourself, mm-hmm. and you are demanding very little of the filmmakers to expand on some of the ideas that were presented to you last time. Yeah, uh, what you know, this is why it frustrates a lot of critics. It's like we're seeing a lot of these films in long-running franchises, hoping that new ideas will be explored, new things will be addressed, things will be kind of exploded, yeah. and be made to, you know, more complex and interesting. And there, there's every opportunity to do that. Yeah. There is no reason not to. Well, no, 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 no. no. There is no reason not to. Uh, there's no reason not to. Yeah. But there's also no reason to assume that hmm. you have to challenge it every time in order to be good. And I, I found, no, that's I true. Found, I found that there are a lot of filmmakers and film mm. franchises that don't reinvent the wheel every time. They have a thing that they're into and they Mm. do it over and over again. They explore the same ideas from different angles. Christopher Nolan's one of those, for example, Mm. um, uh, Steven Spielberg's revolved around the same basic three, Mm. you know, ideas for a while. Mm. Um, And there's, or Terrence Malick is an example. Terrence Malick's Mm. been doing kind of the same movie for a bit. (laughs) Like hidden life was more narrative driven for a while, but he was doing these sort of, um, sort of uh, collage, you know, dreamily edited yeah, tree of life and like poems. 
three or four films he made after that. I would say everything from Thin Red Line, maybe not the New World so much, and then everything else up until Hidden Life. It's like Mm. most of his filmography. And I found that when um, To the Wonder came out, Mm. uh, which is like his romance movie with Ben Affleck and Olga Kurlienko Mm. and Rachel McAdams, people were just like, man, this is really good, but didn't we just see Tree of Life? And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't mean this is bad. This is this is really good, actually. I in really fact, liked To the Wonder. In fact, I think what happens sometimes is our pursuit or our hope that filmmakers or film franchises will reinvent the wheel sometimes leaves us unable to appreciate a really good wheel. <laughs> I don't think, okay. I, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's, it's fair to say, listen, you didn't, fair, you didn't but, break the mold, uh, but you did a really good thing, and yeah. that's okay sometimes. It's okay to just, and this is one of the reasons why we got to judge something by what it is. Yeah. Is it trying to break the mold? No. Is it good for something that came mm. out of the mold? Maybe. Okay, yeah. great. It, did but it try no. to break the mold? Yes. Did it succeed? No. Okay, still not a good movie. You know, like there's mm. a lot of different variables here. Novelty is good. Expanding our horizons and our ideas is good. And I do think that we need more of that. But there is something to be said for you did the genre well. You just no. didn't. You didn't. You know, expand our consciousness. Mm. Well, as somebody who likes to be surprised, sure. and stirred out of stupor, and you know, presented with ideas that might seem a little daring, strange, or even dangerous. Mm-hmm. Sameness can get under my skin sometimes. That's true. Now, but you think about it. No, 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 no. But just let me finish, All right, please. You know, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, the, the idea that we have to go into a movie and only appreciate how efficiently same it is has led to a generation after generation of film franchises that are all the same because nobody's willing to challenge those, and the studios are not expected to challenge those, and the audiences aren't will aren't demanding challenge. And I think it would behoove us and maybe do us a little bit uh, better as audiences and as people who want to expand to demand new ideas from some of these same things that are now in a position to give us some more daring ideas. Yeah, there's a safety mm. net now. Exactly. Like, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. I, I agree with all you know, of that. You know, pl- play without a net. Do something really, really bizarre and, and you know, shake us up a little bit. I think ambition Give us something we don't know we needed rather than something we thought we wanted. I'm totally with you on that. Mm. I'm totally with you on that. And I do believe that if you're living your entire life eating out of vending machines, mm. you're probably not going to have a good diet. Yeah. But there is also something to be said for, damn it, I really want a Snickers. Mm. I'm just going to get a Snickers. Yeah. It's just when when you're all that's available is Snickers, it becomes a bit of a problem. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're not getting a healthy diet. You need a varied diet, not just of nutrition for your body, but also nutrition for your mind. Yeah. And art... You know, many people use it as escapist entertainment. That's one way to use art, but it's not the only way to use art. And Mm -hmm. even if you're only using it that way, you're still feeding that into your brain Mm -hmm. and you're not necessarily giving your brain an opportunity to expand its palate and to find new things that you like. Yeah. yeah. So I know we got off on a tangent. Let's move on. Uh, Another letter. Let's do one more. One more letter. Okay. Let me uh, get it back up here. It closed out on me. I apologize for that. Uh, here is a letter from Benjamin. Hello, Benjamin. Uh, Hi, Benjamin. Hello, Mr. Markmeister McCool. So we sit here in November, just having come through October, which has been universally declared uh, the month for spooky movies, mm. and on our way into December, which is the home of all holiday films and ha- Hallmark treacle. So I'm granting you the power. You get to decide what month-long movie theme you want to grant the world. 
<laughs> Ideally, this would be in November, just mm. to feel this unseemly gap, but who am I to stifle your creativity? Uh, do you want to do a month to dedicated to Westerns, straight-to-DVD sequels, or even just saying that for all... Uh, for all that, uh, all of March, we only watch Miss Saigon on a loop. <laughs> the power is yours. Feel free to abuse it with great admiration, Benjamin. Uh, November is also, and I do want to give the credit to this, a lot of people treat November as Noir-vember. That's true. And there's, there's, there's a hashtag Noir-vember. Noir-vember. People take this as an opportunity to explore the various films in the film noir genre. Um, great genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but so that one's kind of been done. But I do like the idea of we can pick a month where, like, okay, Halloween is horror month, mm. December is Christmas movie month, uh, Valentine's Day is rom com month. Let's pick what, what if you had a month mm. that you wanted to dedicate to a particular mm. genre or subgenre mm. that would just take over the consciousness of the film going world. Like, we're, we're just gonna watch these. Yeah, for, for, for the month we're just gonna we're gonna dedicate our time. Ooh. Obviously, you can watch something else if you mm. want to, but we're all gonna make a concerted effort. Mm. Studios are gonna make sure they put out a couple of films in this genre every year. Uh, there will be like new films added to the streaming service of your choice that all f- mm. focus around this theme. What are you gonna do? <laughs> um, hmm. Like 1930s surrealism month. <laughs> That'd be fun, right? We put. Uh, Put Lodge Dorn and Shannon Lou on a loo. I know Shannon Lou is 20s, but uh, 20, 20s, 30s, just film surrealism month. Oh no, the new Maya Darren film is going to be re released <laughs> on 10,000 screens. Um, the, the, the Orphic trilogy is playing back to back to back at the Chinese. All right, I have three words just, for you. Uh huh. Found footage. February. Oh, man. You always have the puns ready, don't what? you? No, it's not a pun. It's a pun. alliteration. It's an alliteration. You have some it's an alliteration. All the, vo- the vocal tricks ready. The vocal tricks. Yeah. Curse your vocal trickery. <laughs> found footage February is a good Like, found footage was a novelty, and then it became a punchline, and now it's mostly dead. But there were a lot of found footage movies. Some of them were actually really good, and it's a very cheap genre. People can keep making it. Let's bring found footage back. Let's give found footage, at the very least, as much credit as any other subgenre. Mm-hmm. So I say found footage February is my fantasy. We're going to dedicate right. February. But, and I think that February is also a couple other months as well. You, if, you, if that's not right, give it to found footage April or found mm-hmm. footage August. I don't care. Whatever month you want. Uh, but yeah, found footage month, I think, is a fun idea. Mm-hmm. Um, because we can sort of revisit and hopefully reclaim uh, a genre that became a joke and mm. is actually there's a lot of good ones there's a lot of good ones any mm. other months anything else you would like to to mm. do uh, that, that was just sort of my my flip answer yeah um, like I, I'd, I'd really have to think about it to yeah to um, is, can we develop devote a month to like cyber thrillers from the 90s <laughs> <laughs> when the internet was scary, yeah, and having, I like that. And having a, I, I, uh, I recently Cyber September. I recently rewatched uh, Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday, and there's a, a scene where like a yuppie guy is possessed by Jason, and you can tell he's an evil yuppie guy, a because he's got that white collar over the striped shirt. And, and like yeah. the Gordon Gecko hair, but he has a cell phone. Oh, shit. 
And this the movie what was made. Dick. The movie came out in 1993, so that was like like the antithesis of being a decent human being was owning a, a mobile phone. Who do you think you are that you need to have you're a so phone in, on? You're you. so important that people need to reach you at all times. How just dare just you? Just leave the house, and they'll get you when you're at home. Ah. Oh. This was the attitude, by the way. People actually. Oh, yeah. There's a, a scene in the movie called Crazy People um, with Dudley Moore. I don't remember uh, this movie. Do you see this movie? Dudley no, Moore and Daryl Hannah. He plays an ad executive who uh, like has a bit of a, a nervous breakdown and starts like doing, quote, honest ads. Oh, okay. It's like, a, here, here's a movie called The Freak. What tagline are you going to put up for The Freak? This movie is so scary, it'll fuck you up for life. Put that on the poster. And they do. <laughs> and it's a big hit. Yeah. And but it's yeah. it's like scaring all the other ex- ad executives, so they have him committed. And, what was it? What was it in Muppets Take Manhattan? Like ocean breeze soap. It's, <laughs> it's like, like taking, going on. A, it's taking an ocean cruise. Only there is no boat, and you don't go anywhere. <laughs> what about ocean breeze soap makes you clean? You mean just say what it does? <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> it's like a, it's a Quaker Oats. Does the cereal taste great? Who knows? But the box is cute. Like that was the, that was the tagline. That's funny. It's, it's a it's a cute movie. Um, but I watched it a lot as a kid. Mm. But uh, one of the running gags in that movie is uh, Dudley Moore keeps pulling up to a guy who has a cell phone in his car <laughs> on the freeway. He's just sort of chatting on the phone. Yeah, I'm just here on the freeway. And the big moment of catharsis comes was when he gets out of his car in traffic, walks over to that guy. Traffic has stopped. Walks over to the guy in the other car, rips his phone out of his hand and says, these annoy people. And he throws it off a bridge. <laughs> and that's like sort of this catharsis that he's becoming more of a complete human being again, that he destroyed a mobile phone. Mm. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> Anyway, um, so yeah, tech, tech-based uh, paranoia. I like. We it. need a, a month for tech-based paranoia, and the God knows we have enough of it. Mm. So that's a good idea. So thank you, uh, thank you for that. Mm. Uh, thank you everybody who wrote in. Uh, we will be back next week with more letters. That's what we do. If mm. you want to write in, the email address is letters at critically acclaimed dot net and man we gotta stop recording these so late at night i feel like i was really inarticulate this week. <laughs> yeah i was just kind of st- stumbling over myself sorry about that if we were inarticulate mm. we'll sorry but uh <laughs> anyway uh we also you can follow us on twitter at william bibiani at whitney seibold mm. at critic acclaim for the show proper and of course we have a patreon page patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network where you can vote for future episodes of our shows and get access to a lot of exclusive content We've got uh, podcasts about the 1960s Batman, Star Trek, Academy Award nominated movies, stuff that isn't on Disney Plus but should be. We got commentary tracks. We've got uh, podcasts that are still available, even though we're not making them anymore. We did the entire series of Firefly, one episode per podcast. Uh, we did, uh, for a long time, we had a podcast called uh, the Cancel Too Soon Monthly Movie, where we focused on uh, TV movies and miniseries, many of which the time forgot. Um, that's all available if you head on mm. over to Patreon, depending on what uh, tier you sign up for. Um, so that's that. And um, yeah, and of course, Letters Are Critically Acclaimed is where you can email us for future episodes. I'm so tired. <laughs> Let, let's let's uh, sign off so we can tuck William into bed. Oh, I and, feel uh, snuggly. I hope uh, wherever you are, you're snuggling up and uh, wear your fuzzy feety pajamas, do- dozing off to dozing off to sleep. Unless you're on in the car, then don't yeah, do that. Hands to ten and two. Hands to ten and two. <laughs> Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs> <laughs>